We are going to be dealing with a topic. There's going to be a topical message, so we're not going to turn to any specific passage to begin with. Um, Zach will help us out with Scripture on the screen, however. When it comes to looking to the new year, what we like to do, generally at the end of the year or first Sunday of the new year, is just take some time to remind ourselves of our priorities and our convictions as a church. What is a church? What is the mission of the church? How should the church carry out that mission? Those are essential questions. These are things that a church must think deeply about. And what I want us to understand this morning is that at Calvary Baptist Church, we do think deeply about those questions. Those questions, what is the church? What is the mission of the church? How should a church fulfill its mission? The answer to those questions determine our identity as a church, our purpose as a church, the character of the church. How a church answers those questions or fails to answer those questions really determines everything about the church, the makeup of a congregation, the character of its leadership, the content of its teaching, even the style of its worship are all determined by how we answer those questions. So what is a church? What is the mission of the church? How should a church carry out uh, its mission? And what we believe in those areas will determine uh, why we do the things we do and how we do the things That we do. And so, as I said, as we enter the new year, this is kind of a time to be reminded and almost, I guess you could say, recommit uh, to some areas of conviction because the answers to those questions dictate our mission and really drive how we fulfill that mission. Now, as we consider those questions what is the church? What is the mission of the church? How do we fulfill that mission? How are we going to answer those questions? Where should we go to answer those questions? Kind of like Sunday school, where you know the answer is always right, but this time it's not. It's the Bible. So uh, how do we answer those questions? Well, we're going to look to Scripture. We as a church do not determine who we are and what we do and how we do it based upon human ingenuity or human wisdom. Uh, our, our goal is simply to look to the Scriptures. That's paramount. That's going to dictate and drive everything that we do. It's going to dictate and drive everything we do in 2024, just as it has in years past. So, this morning, we're going to explore what the Bible says about those fundamental quest, uh, questions, and we're going to recommit to what we will call a biblical philosophy of ministry. A biblical philosophy of ministry. A biblical philosophy of ministry is an operating philosophy which is shaped by non-negotiable biblical principles. It determines and drives everything that we do as a church. It seeks to answer those fundamental questions that we've already laid out. And so, as a church, we have identified five key non-negotiable biblical principles uh, which together form our biblical philosophy of ministry. I'm going to give them to you. Uh, well, I said five. Let's do six. Uh, If you're good, we could do seven or eight. Uh, We'll do six. Six biblical, non-negotiable biblical principles that form our biblical philosophy of ministry. Number one is God is holy. Number two is mankind is fallen. Number three, the spirit is active. Number four, the scripture are sufficient. Number five, the church is essential. And number six, Jesus is Lord. Of course, we could go on. There could be so many more, but these together are what we might call the pillars of our biblical philosophy of ministry at Calvary Baptist Church. And so this may be especially helpful for you if you've been attending for a short uh, amount of time and you're just trying to figure out what we're all about. If you've been coming for a long time, this is great just to recommit. 
So as a church, it is our commitment that no teaching, no program, no policies, no methodologies should violate or contradict those six convictions. Further, we're committed to using fidelity to those convictions as the measure of success. So is Calvary Baptist Church successful? How do we measure that? By how many seats are filled? Absolutely not. We measure success based upon how faithful we are uh, to God's revelation and uh, certainly to those six principles. So we're going to look at each of those briefly, hopefully, and uh, hopefully get through them all in a reasonable amount of time. First of all, the first pillar of our biblical philosophy of ministry at Calvary Baptist Church is that conviction that God is holy, that God is holy. Perhaps the greatest ill that plagues, we could say, the modern church is that many have surrendered a high view of God. They've surrendered a high view of God. The modern church, in some ways, is worshiping a God entirely different from the God of Scripture. I mean, the God that Isaiah saw, a high and lifted up. Uh, it seems that many churches, or the modern church, seem to be worshiping a different God than Isaiah, a different God than Moses, uh, a God whose presence made the mountains quake, whose holiness prevented any from approaching it. It seems as if modern churches are worshiping a different God than the God whose Presence appeared in the holiest of holies, in the heart of the tabernacle, which no man could approach. The modern church seems to be worshiping a different God than the God of whom John wrote in the book of Revelation, uh, the sovereign God, the holy God, the true God, of whom the angels around the throne continually cry what? Holy, holy, holy. We ought to have an exalted or a high view of God. We learn much about our object of worship through our worship. And this is one of the reasons we can say that it appears as if many churches uh, have exchanged the holy God of heaven for a God of their own making, because we not only worship God here, we not only uh, learn about God in order to worship, but through our worship, it seems that many can learn about the God we worship. When people come in the back door and they watch us worship and they uh, see how we behave ourselves and they hear the lyrics that we're singing and they hear the style of preaching and so on, all of this seems then to reflect the God that we claim to be worshiping. And so we can learn something about the God that's being worshipped through the style of worship. That's important to us at Calvary. Our worship is dictated and determined by our view of God. And hopefully we have a high view of God and recognize that he is holy. He is not a small God. He's not a God who smiles upon human pride. He is not a God who relishes in uh, worldly entertainment or trendiness. The God worshipped in many churches is a God who's high on the toleration of sin, a high on the toleration of impurity. He is a God who molds and shapes himself to whatever forms uh, best suits a fickle people. That God is a God who adopts whatever methodology uh, is uh, most acceptable uh, to the culture instead of that which Scripture dictates. The God of a modern church is a God who does not inspire his people to come up and to worship him with exalted praise, but instead is a God who's brought down and really shaped and molded by man's desires. The God who is loving and merciful and gracious and long-suffering and forgiving, we have to remember, is also the God who is sovereign and eternal and transcendent and self-existent and all-powerful and all-knowing and always present and unchanging. We must have a high view of God. And so that determines how and why we do so much of what we do at Calvary. 
A.W. Tozer said, The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. And there he nails it because he's saying that uh, our view of God theologically trickles down and affects our lifestyles practically. And so that's what I'm saying earlier, is that how we do things is not only a product of what we view or think about God, uh, but uh, it also then reflects upon, uh, allows others then to see uh, who we believe the God is that we worship through our styles of worship. If we are to worship rightly, we must have a right concept of God. If we're to live properly, we must have a right concept of God. For this reason, it is our commitment, listen, to know God according to his own self-disclosure as found in his word, and ultimately in his son, in order that we might enter into and grow within a personal covenant relationship with him, offering up praise and worship which is acceptable to him. That's our goal. Our ideas about God and his character and how he responds to us will determine everything else about us as a church. We want to ensure that the God that we worship is the same God of the psalmists. Psalm 30, verse 4, Sing praises to the Lord, O ye his saints, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 33, 21, For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Psalm 103, 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Psalm 105, 3, Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Psalm 145, 23, 21, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. When we think about the God of heaven, the God of the scriptures, it should well up inside of us what? Praise, thanksgiving, trust, glorying, rejoicing, blessing his name and seeking him according to the psalmists. It's essential that we grasp the reality that God is holy. His holiness is his chief characteristic. And God simply does not tolerate or accept worship, which does not exalt his holy name. Leviticus chapter 22, verse 32 says, You shall not profane my holy name, that I I may be sanctified among the people. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And so I have set you apart for holiness for my holy name's sake. And now what is our responsibility is to worship him in such a way where the impression we are giving of our God to others is that he is a holy God. That is so lost in uh, many churches when you look at their methodology and their style of worship and how they do ministry and uh, how they uh, bring people into fellowship and how they carry on uh, as a church culture. Our responsibility is is to conduct ourselves according to God's design so that we are a proper reflection of His holiness. His holiness speaks of His very nature as a being who stands separate and distinct from every created thing. Not that He is a created being who's distinct from all other created beings, but that He is wholly different, unlike anything in the created order. Understand that God ultimately is incomprehensible. He condescends to us. He accommodates our limitations uh, through metaphor and analogy in Scripture. But at the end of the day, God ultimately in his essence is absolutely incomprehensible. Exodus 15.11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in deeds, doing wonders? Isaiah 40 verse 18 says, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? There is no comparison. Isaiah 40, verse 25, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. That's the God that we worship. 
wholly transcendent, self-existent, and incomprehensible. Tozer again says, God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man, he said, is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. The fact is, God is, again, wholly other, entirely distinct and incomprehensible. He is incomparable. He he is like nothing and related to nothing. There are no human terms, no human categories, which can comprehensibly describe, describe God in the essence of his majestic holiness. In fact, the incomprehensibility of God and the holy otherness of God, the fact that he's entirely separate and distinct, not only from man, but from anything that man can fully understand, is, again, we could say the very essence of what it means that he is holy. This is Isaiah's vision of God in Isaiah 6. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Understand that this is the same God that we worship. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that says that, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We as a church are those who have seen in the face of Jesus Christ the glory of this holy God. And so we do not want to lose our exalted view of God. As a church, we have a commitment to a high view of God. So how does this impact us practically? Well, we teach and preach the biblical revelation of God. We don't seek to bring God down to some human conception. Instead, we seek to be brought up to how Scripture reveals God. He is holy. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is a God who hates sin. He is a God who loves holiness. He does not look look lightly upon sin which is why ultimately he required the substitutionary sacrifice of his own son who gave himself willingly for us on the cross. We preach God as the Bible presents God. He is the glorious king of the universe. He sits upon his throne high and lifted up. He's surrounded by angels who continuously cry, holy, holy, holy. So we cannot and will not promote or tolerate irreverent worship. We will not deviate from Scripture in creating a conception of God which detracts from His majesty or His glory or His holiness. That means there's no flippancy. There's no irreverence here in how we worship. This will be manifest in our approach to preaching, teaching, music, prayer, and every other area of ministry. We will proclaim His glory and majesty in worship. We will exalt Him. We will submit to Him. We will encourage all men and women to order their lives in such a way as to portray a love and reverence towards him as their holy God. So we seek to be God-centered. We're not man-centered. We, we seek to worship God and not create some type of cult of personality here at Calvary. We understand the Bible not primarily to be a book of how-tos, five ways to improve your marriage, how to succeed in the workplace, seven ways to raise great kids, etc. 
It's got wonderful principles for every area of life. It's everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. But at the end of the day, the scriptures are the self-disclosure of the holy God of heaven. So our ministry must promote the fear of God in the lives of the people that we touch. So that whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. And that's why, if you've ever noticed in any of our material, it says Calvary Baptist Church. It says for His glory, by His grace. That's our desire. So number one, God is holy. Number two, what's another conviction? A pillar of our philosophy of ministry. A high view of God, the fact that God is holy. Number two, mankind is fallen. There cannot be a greater gulf between these two. The holy God of heaven and fallen mankind. But both are essential to understand how we ought to do ministry. It is our conviction based upon scripture that mankind is in a state of fallenness. That is when Adam's sin Sin passed upon all men. Humanity died spiritually. Humanity lost its capacity for righteousness. All of humankind became spiritually dead, separated from God, and incapable of rectifying that uh, situation in their own power. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. This is the natural state of mankind. All that are born into the world are in a fallen state. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we'll come back to this in a minute, but it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, now listen, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by, what does it say, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the universal pronouncement over mankind. Spiritually dead, children of wrath. And so, spiritual death, enmity against God, inability to submit to the law or to please Him. Romans chapter 8, verse 5 through 8 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, what does it say? It cannot. Those who are in the flesh, it says, cannot please God. That's the state of all human beings born into this world and their fallenness. They cannot please God while remaining in their flesh. What does that mean? Well, we are naturally incapable of perceiving spiritual truth. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 through 6, that all mankind is what? Blinded. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, as we've already seen, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's saying what? Mankind in his natural state is absolutely blind to spiritual realities. And if he is to see, that will require a creative work by God himself on par with the creation of the world. Just like God said, let there be light in the beginning, so he must say, let there be spiritual light in the heart of fallen mankind if he is to be made spiritually alive. So mankind is incapable of perceiving spiritual truth. He's blind. Next, we see that mankind in his natural state has an incurably sinful heart. 
Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But you see in Ezekiel chapter 11, that promise of the new covenant, what's the promise? I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I'll be their God. The point being this, that man in his natural state has an incurably sinful heart. And so he needs a heart transplant. Uh, Well, just like it must be a creative act of God who lifts the blindness of those who are spiritually blind, so too it must be a divine work which takes out the old corrupted heart and gives us a new spiritual heart. Next of all, we see, again, we've already noted that man is also referred to as being spiritually dead. Well, God, uh, mankind in his fallenness needs a divine act to lift the spiritual blindness needs a divine act then to give us a new spiritual heart and also needs a divine act to bring us into spiritual resurrection. So the biblical language of mankind is what? Blind, a heart which is corrupt, and being spiritually dead. Well, that has real repercussions for what we do as a church and how we preach and how we share the gospel and so on. The reality is mankind needs what? New birth. Mankind needs a spiritual act of God, whereby he sends his Holy Spirit to regenerate from the inside out. And that comes as a product not of human works, not of reformation, not effort, but wholly and entirely by God's divine grace. So, John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John chapter 5, verse 21 says, For as the Father raises the dead, Jesus says, and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Because of man's sinful condition, because of his fallenness, because of his spiritual blindness, because of his incurably sinful heart, because he is spiritually dead, what he needs is the new birth. That's our conviction. And that happens only by God alone. James 1.18 says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Jesus in John 3, speaking to Nicodemus, that religious leader, that spiritual teacher in Israel, said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. This is a divine act where he permits his Holy Spirit to fall on whomever he chooses, whenever he chooses, and he brings forth as a divine, sovereign act, spiritual life. So mankind is blind, dead, incurable, has a defiled heart, in need of the new birth, and only God can open eyes that are blind and raise the dead and change man's heart. A biblical philosophy of ministry requires that we seek to satisfy man's real needs, not their perceived needs. Man's greatest need is regeneration. He needs to be made new through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the starting point, is transformation, not reformation. So how do we apply that? Well, I mean, a couple things. We ensure that our gospel message is pure. We're going to see in a moment that God uses the preaching of the gospel. The Holy Spirit energizes the preaching of the gospel, imparts it to the hearts of individuals, and through that preaching, calls individuals to himself and regenerates. 
And so our responsibility then is not to find some creative or novel methodology to try to compel people to receive Jesus. Hey, listen, he's just knocking on the door of your heart. Will you just open up your heart to him? Uh, we're not into guilting people. We're not into high pressure uh, altar calls or things like this. Uh, we recognize that God saves people through the preaching of the word. So our responsibility is to preach an unadulterated gospel message. Regeneration, not reformation. When it comes to sanctification as well, we understand the Spirit's at work, as we're going to see in a moment. And so we do not allow a legalistic foot in the door because we do not change people from the outside in, but the Spirit changes them from the inside out. And that leads us to our next point. Number one, God is holy. Number two, mankind is fallen. Number three, the Spirit is active. The Spirit is active. If mankind is fallen... Spiritually blind, spiritually dead, of a corrupt heart, totally unable to cure himself. Does that mean all is hopeless? No, because the Spirit is active. It's our conviction that the Holy Spirit is God's agent to call men and women to salvation, to make them spiritually new at salvation through the gospel, to continue the work of sanctifying the believer through the means of grace all the way until the day when he raises them up by his power at the resurrection. Paul said in writing to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How did Paul know that God had chosen the believers in Thessalonica? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. How can you tell that somebody is elect? How can you tell that somebody's been chosen by God? Well, uh, within whom is the gospel uh, made effective by the Holy Spirit? So it's evident to Paul that these Thessalonians, Thessalonians were chosen. Why? Because the gospel came not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you, he says. The gospel comes in the power of the Holy Spirit, and the gospel, uh, through empowered by the Spirit, is that which calls men to salvation and ultimately converts them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through the sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he said, I'm so thankful because of God's work in your heart because we preach the gospel and you believe because the Holy Spirit sets you apart for salvation. It's the Spirit who sets apart individuals for salvation, whom he then calls to faith through the preaching of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the agent. Romans chapter 8, we see what we call the golden chain of salvation. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so there we see God's order of salvation. We see that golden chain of salvation all the way from God's foreknowledge to predestination, to calling, uh, to justification, and then to glorification And the Holy Spirit is the agent making each one of those links of that golden chain effectual. So Jesus can say in John 6, verse 44, that no one can come to him except 
The Father who sent me draws him, and he says, I'll raise him up the last day. The Holy Spirit is God's agent of drawing and calling and predestinating uh, and ultimately justifying and glorifying those who believe in Christ. The Holy Spirit draws, the Holy Spirit indwells, John 14, 17. Jesus says that the Spirit is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot know because it neither sees Him or knows Him. He says, you know Him, for He dwells in you and will be with you and will be in you. The Spirit draws, the Holy Spirit indwells. You know, the Holy Spirit is also the agent of discipleship. John 14, Jesus says it's the Spirit who will teach you all things. The Spirit draws, the Spirit indwells, the Spirit is the agent of discipleship. It's the Spirit who draws and convicts and softens and hardens and binds hearts and reveals. It's the Spirit who works effectually in us to sanctify us. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 through 4 it indicates that we now, as by virtue of our new spiritual life, have now been enabled to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, which we could never do before, when we do what? When we walk according to the Spirit. When we walk according to the Spirit. So then we see the fruit of the Spirit. The product of the Spirit's work in our lives is producing Christ-like character in us. So progressively over time, we become what? More loving. More joyous. We have a greater peace. We have an enduring patience. We grow in kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. There's all the evidence of the Spirit in us producing Christ-like character uh, inside of us through that process of sanctification. This, This is really assuring when it comes to spiritual leadership, when it comes to being a pastor. Because I understand that the Spirit, if you're a genuine believer, the Spirit is active and present in your life, right? If I didn't believe that, then I would think that I then would have to fulfill the role that the Spirit is now doing. Uh, so, so then I got to get my hands all up in your business all the time. Uh, why are you doing that? You shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be doing that. You should be doing this, and you should be doing this over here. Uh, and, and that's why I think you may have this experience in, in churches in the past. Maybe you've had an experience in a church where, frankly, there's just a lot of rules, a lot of high pressure. Uh, they're legalistic. Uh, preaching came across as trying to guilt, guilt you into action, guilt you into to stopping certain things, that guilt you into starting to do other things, and so on. Why? Because there's a lack of conviction that the Holy Spirit is active. If we are convicted and convinced that the Holy Spirit is present in believers, then I know that the Spirit's going to change individuals from the inside out, and He's going to use God's means to do that. And God's means are not legalistic, and God's means are not guilt. Uh, instead, we're going to use the Word, and we're going to use fellowship, and we're going to use prayer, and we're going to use the Lord's table. We're going to use uh, God-honoring uh, worship. All the means of grace that we have, the Holy Spirit uses those in your life, in my life, and that's where real change takes place. And so that's where we put the emphasis as a church. So it's not our role to manipulate people into receiving Christ, because the Spirit draws them. It's not our job to put high pressure on people or to guilt them uh, in order to transform their lives because it's the Holy Spirit that produces sanctification. This is the Spirit who works in us through the Word. And that's our next point. So, first of all, God is holy. Next of all, mankind has fallen. Number three, the Spirit is active. And number four, the Scripture is sufficient. The Scripture is sufficient. 2 Timothy 3.14, Paul said to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And he says, all Scripture 
is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What Paul is saying to Timothy as Timothy is pastoring there in Ephesus, he's saying, you have everything you need for ministry. You have it all. Where does he have everything he needs for ministry? He has it in the Word of God. So, Timothy, what do you want to do? You want to teach? Use the Word. You want to reprove individuals? Use the Word. You want to correct? Use the Word. Do you want to train people in how to live righteous lives? Use the Word. He says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, just like Timothy was equipped for every good work in Ephesus through the Word of God, it's our conviction that we at Calvary are equipped for every aspect of ministry, for that teaching and training ministry through the Word of God. So our commitment is to teach the Scriptures and to teach them unadulterated. It's our conviction that we must renounce worldly methods. And that's born out of the conviction that it's the Scriptures alone that the Lord has chosen to imbue with His life-transforming power. It's driven by the conviction that the Holy Spirit blesses the faithful preaching of His Word. That through the faithful preaching of the word, God accomplishes all of his purposes. He says that his word will not return to him void. It's going to accomplish all of his purposes. Everything that he sends his word, his word out to accomplish, it accomplishes. So we believe that the Holy Spirit through the scriptures... And now listen, I'm going to use language very similar to what I used in the last point. Because oftentimes what we say the Spirit does, we can also say the word of God does. Because the Holy Spirit works through the word. The Holy Spirit, through the Scripture, softens hearts, exposes hearts, even hardens hearts. The Holy Spirit, through the Scriptures, produces faith, draws men to Christ, brings forth salvation. The Holy Spirit, through the Word, establishes truth and reproves error and corrects behavior and instructs us in righteous living. And so we believe that the Word acts as a mirror which exposes sin in every, in every area in which we fall short of God's glory. Further, we believe that the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit uses, or that the Spirit uses the, whole, the Scriptures to edify us and to build us up and to encourage us and to comfort us. This conviction is simultaneously both constraining and liberating. It's constraining in that God has provided the boundaries for us when it comes to a church and how we operate. We're going to operate according to the Scriptures. So it's constraining that way, but it's also liberating. Because I understand it's not left up to me to invent what a church ought to be. I don't got to come up with some novel uh, approach to ministry. And in that way, what happens here is never the product of Rick's ministry or Jared's ministry or anybody else's ministry. It's all the product of God blessing his means when we're faithful to those means. It's only when you deviate away from God's means of uh, building his church that men could then get reared up in their own pride and then take credit for what they've done. Uh, well, banish the thought, we are going to stick to Scripture. It's going to simultaneously constrain us, but also liberate us, because I know I don't have to come up with how to do church. God's given us everything we need. And so our success is measured best by our faithfulness in accurately teaching the Word, since the production of the fruit is up to the Lord. That's a product of the Holy Spirit. And so our concern is simply faithfully use the means of grace and trust that God will produce fruit. That's it. So the scripture is sufficient. It's the power of God into salvation. For the, for the sake of time, we're not going to look at the scripture, but uh, it is the power of God uh, to salvation for everyone who, for salvation to everyone who believes, according to Paul. It's the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God for spiritual growth. We've already seen that. 
And so it's the Word of God empowered by the Spirit again that softens hearts, exposes hearts, hardens hearts, produces faith, draws men to Christ, brings forth salvation, establishes truth, reproves, corrects, and instructs us in righteous living, and so on. Well, let's move on. God is holy, mankind is fallen, the Spirit is active, the Scripture is sufficient. And number five is our conviction that the church is essential. The church is essential. What is the church? If you have started Membership Matters, you've done a couple lessons at the beginning, maybe three or four lessons actually, seeking to establish what is the church. A church is a group of baptized believers committed to live out their discipleship together who regularly gather in organized assemblies, continuing together in the Apostles' Doctrine, fellowship, prayer, and the practice of the ordinances under the oversight of appointed leadership. That's our definition of a church. This is a gathering that's not the invention of man, but it's the church that Jesus Christ is building. Jesus began building his church on the day of Pentecost, where all uh, believers met together as one local gathering organized under the leadership of the Apostles. Then remember when persecution came and the church was scattered out of Jerusalem, but then those scattered believers then organized themselves into other local assemblies uh, where they were organized under uh, identifiable leadership. Those churches then became local outposts of Jesus' universal church. Each church became a local embassy representing the kingdom of heaven on earth. Each local church possessed apostolic authority to preach the good news of the kingdom and to add new citizens to it, and then to teach them what it was to live as God's new covenant people. We see that pattern established in the New Testament. We see those local churches exercising the authorities of the kingdom, uh, keys of the kingdom that were entrusted to the apostles, the church being built upon them. All of that is true of every true church. Our church is being built by Jesus Christ. Our church is invested with the authority of the keys of the kingdom. Our church has a responsibility to act as an administrator of the kingdom of God on earth. When you join Calvary Baptist Church or you join any local church, you take up both that authority and responsibility along with your fellow church members. With the keys of the kingdom in hand, We, as a church, work together with the authority and the approval of Jesus to build his church upon the foundation of the apostles. So, church is essential. This is is God's design for the administration of his kingdom in this phase of redemptive history. And so, for the sake of time, we're not going to explore these very much, but we're going to say the church is designed by God to be the repository of divine truth. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15, he says, if I, delay, you may know how, uh, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. What he's saying is the church is the divine repository or the repository of divine truth. The church is the stewards of the Holy Scriptures. The church brings divine truth to bear upon the world. That's our responsibility. As his stewards, we teach his word faithfully and accurately. We seek to live it out practically. We proclaim his word to the uh, word to the world. We protect the word from false teachers. We defend the word against detractors. We preserve the word through faithful teaching. We practice the word through obedient lives. So then a love for God and God's word ultimately should lead us to love the church since it is God's 
repository for his divine truth. Next of all, the church is essential because the church exists to provide guidance and protection under spiritual leadership. For this, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4 for the next three points here. Ephesians chapter 4. You can turn there if you'd like, or Zach will put it on the screen for us. Paul said in writing to the Ephesians, Ephesians 4, it says that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Now, this passage is about the, the local church. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. What do we learn then about the church? God has given leadership for the church. Prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. These are overseers. The church exists to provide guidance, the guidance and protection of spiritual leadership. And this is one of the reasons the church is essential. God has designed your spiritual life to be lived out, gathering together in a local community, organized under uh, appointed leadership. Okay, what else? Well, the church exists as a training center whereby people can grow through the application uh, of teaching and the utilization of their spiritual gifts. We see that again in Ephesians 4. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, appointed leadership, gifted leadership over the church to do what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. And so the church is essential because this is the arena in which you and I are to be trained up. So we are to be equipped and then we are to work, it says there, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Have you ever understood that your responsibility and my responsibility is not to come to church just simply to consume, but we are to be trained up to work? To work to do what? Well, to do the work of the ministry, right? And so we all ought to be ministers of the word to one degree or another. The church is the place where saints are equipped to do the work under what? Qualified leadership. What else? Well, the church is essential, next of all, because it exists to provide a context for mutual edification, for mutual edification. Again, Ephesians 4, he gave the apostles, the the, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, that's your appointed leadership, for the purpose of equipping the saints, so the saints can be trained up to work, to do the ministry of the word. For what purpose? It says, for the building up of the body of Christ. So, So we're being trained together so that we work together, so that we are being used by Jesus to build up the body, to build his church, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ. We're all growing in maturity. What does that maturity look like? More and more like Jesus. More and more like Jesus. We're all growing together, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, that does some doctrinal stability there that comes as a product of our spiritual growth uh, as we mature together. But then verse 15 says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What is that? You have appointed leadership in the church. You then have the saints being equipped by the teaching ministry, the shepherding ministry of those leaders. They're being trained up, not just for head knowledge, but to work, to do the ministry of the word. And what will the product of that be? The church together is going to grow into maturity. So we're all going to become more and more like Christ. We're going to become spiritually mature. We're going to become doctrinally stable. We're going to be lovingly unified. And then in verse 16, what does it say? 
it says when a church is operating properly, individuals in the church are exercising their spiritual gifts. They're like the members of a body, and every one of those members contributes something to the overall health of the body, so that when every point, every part is working properly, the body grows up and builds itself up in love. Okay, so a local church then is a group of baptized believers committed to live out their discipleship together, who regularly gather and organize assemblies, continuing together in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and prayer and the practice of the ordinances under the oversight of appointed leadership. And that's it. It's all there in Ephesians chapter 4. Also, the church exists as the sole arena in which the ordinances are to be practiced. It's the church where we baptize. It's the church where we participate in the Lord's table. Uh, don't get some confused understanding of baptism where you just feel anybody, you're just going to baptize in your backyard. Uh, you know, we're going to do the Lord's table. Uh, we're going to get our, 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 you know, peanut butter and, uh, and, uh, and orange juice and we're going to do peanut butter. We're going to have our, uh, we're going to have our bread and peanut butter and orange juice. We're going to call it communion. Uh, the church is the arena in which the ordinances are to be practiced. Why? Because the church through baptism collectively affirms the profession of faith of an individual. When that individual then goes on to participate in the Lord's table and we participate together, collectively what we are saying to one another is, I affirm your continuing and ongoing profession of your faith, right? So baptism is the front door where the church says we affirm that your profession. The Lord's table says we continue to affirm your profession of faith. And then it's the church that exercises church discipline where the church then says, we no longer affirm your profession of faith based upon your refusal uh, to repent of your ongoing sin. Through the faithful exercises of the ordinances, the church and the church alone wields the keys of the kingdom. And so the church is absolutely essential. That's our commitment. And it's the church that exists to be a light in the dark world for the evangelization of the lost. I mean, that's the Great Commission. Go, therefore, into all nations, uh, teaching in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that Christ commanded. And Jesus says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So we're not just about building the internal community, but a healthy body than what has influence that spills out into the world uh, by evangelizing the lost. All right, God is holy, mankind is fallen, the Spirit is active, Scripture is sufficient, the church is essential, and lastly, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. We're going to end here. I usually speak quickly when I preach, but today has been especially Fast, okay? So if you're a visitor and say, I can't keep up with this guy, you could go listen to the podcast and play it at like 0.75 times speed later on. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, Paul says to the Ephesians, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So Paul is praying, I want you to grow in your understanding. I want you to have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. What would that look like? What does he want them to understand better? He says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. 
That's quite the image, right? I want you almost to have that epiphany. I want you to wake up to these realities. What? That you may know, one, what is the hope to which you have been called. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Next, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Next, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is a name that not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He's saying, I pray for you that you will grow and understand more and more the hope that you have in Jesus. Understand you have resurrection hope. Understanding that death cannot harm one who believes in Christ. You will be resurrected in the last day. But also I want you to understand the riches of his glorious inheritance that you have. All that he's given you in Jesus, all that is due Jesus' name, has now been granted to you who are in Jesus by faith. I want you to know that more and more. And I also want you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. So we're talking about having a high view of God. Uh, He has great power, which he has exercised on our behalf. And I want you to know more and more about that. That's how I want you to grow. But then he says in verse 22, speaking of Christ, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. At the end of the day, we are the body of Christ. Christ is the head. He is Lord of all. So everything that we do must be done in submission to the desire of Jesus. He's Lord. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now listen, I know this is talking about marriage primarily, but we're learning something about the relationship between Jesus and the church as well. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. What do we learn about Christ in the church there? Some of you are caught up on what it says about wives and husbands, but what, is it, what do we learn about Christ? He is sanctifying the church so that he can present the church to himself in splendor. We belong to him. We exist for his glory, and we are to submit to him in everything. Colossians 1.15 Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And all that we do as a church, Christ is to be preeminent. He is the head of the body. Jesus bought the church with his blood. Jesus is building the church through his spirits. And the church then is to submit to Christ as Lord. In conclusion, a biblical philosophy of ministry is an operating philosophy which is shaped by non-negotiable biblical principles. It determines and drives everything that we do as a church. And so we've identified at least six principles that guide us. 
So if you have questions about why does Calvary do what it, what, what it does, uh, why do we not do certain things, why do we do certain things, uh, you, you ought to be able to look at these six points and say, ah, I see. And frankly, if you may observe something and say, well, wait a second, this seems to contradict a conviction uh, based upon these principles, then approach us kindly and let us know. So we summarize our philosophy of ministry by saying God is holy, mankind is fallen, the Spirit is active, Scripture is sufficient, the church is essential, and Jesus is Lord. So as we come into 2024, this is what we're asking. Do you confess those very same things, and are you committed to live those out together collectively as a church? Wonderful. We're going to have an awesome new year. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and its clarity. Help us to be faithful to the scriptures. Protect us from relying upon human wisdom, human ingenuity. Help us instead to be submitted to your self-disclosure in scripture, not only as to who you are, who Christ is, but also your design for the church. Uh, areas in which we fail, we pray that you'd reveal that to us. Uh, we are not a perfect church. We, there's plenty that needs uh, uh, to be improved and Areas, hopefully, where we fail, it's because we uh, maybe lack perspective or lack knowledge. So we pray that you'll help us to grow. Um, And Lord, we don't in any way believe that we are uh, the only healthy church or good church in the city. Um, We pray that you will help other churches around us uh, to recommit to a biblical philosophy of ministry as well. And that you'll grow and uh, and bless other ministries uh, here in the city of Windsor. But Lord, we pray that you'd help us. Um, to continually grow to your pleasure. We pray that uh, as the church continues to grow and you add people to the faith, as we see baptisms and we see memberships and we see uh, loving relationships and we see reconciliation and uh, we see people proving the genuineness of their faith through repentance and so on. As we see all of this happen, we pray that you would just remind us that this is all the product of your work. And uh, we pray that you would help us to never succumb to the temptation to uh, take any of that glory for ourselves, but to recognize it's all the product of your work through your means. We thank you that you've allowed us to have a front row seat to the work which you are doing on earth. You've allowed us to see your work up close, the arena of the church where your spirit is actively working. So we thank you for that privilege. And again, we just pray you'd help us more and more in the new year uh, to live in faithfulness uh, to these biblical convictions. We pray for any of this morning who are not yet believers. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work. Draw individuals to yourself and press upon their hearts their need for Jesus. And we pray that you would save souls. We thank you for all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.